he went away from there and came to his own hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he, they marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. Hey, it's taken us 26 weeks, but we finally made it to chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> and there are 10 more chapters to go, so we are not leaving Mark anytime soon. I don't have a problem with that, as I just love the depth and the intricacies of this very neglected gospel. Certainly not neglected by scholars, but just neglected by people. They all want Matthew and Luke and, and John, but oh, I love Mark. Now, this package of, passage of scripture not only has great depth contextually, but is also a gold mine for our own struggles for acceptance. <clears throat> it's a wake-up call and a reminder also, you know, to get over ourselves or to take things too personally or to resort to anger and bitterness, which are just heading in absolutely the wrong direction if you want to impact the world on behalf of the kingdom. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character and Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blogs at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. Posted every Friday. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources for this series can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right, starting with uh, chapter 6, verse 1, let's, let's just go ahead and get started. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. All right, where is there? We, uh, we actually don't know for sure. He had just healed the woman with the issue of blood and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, but not one of the gospel accounts says anything other than that this took place somewhere in the towns along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So wherever this is, he now leaves town, had to probably, I mean, once the dead girl was seen walking around. Well, she wasn't dead anymore. This isn't like a zombie. This is like she got raised and she's walking around now. 
And, you know, he's heading to Nazareth. So let's do a little bit of geography and history on Nazareth and the region around it so we can understand why they were there in the first place. Now, Nazareth is southwest of the Sea of Galilee, but getting there as the crow flies, quote-unquote, wasn't really something one would do on foot. Most of Galilee is hills and valleys, making those hills and valleys very fertile, but certainly not as fertile as the Jordan Valley region. The city of Sepphoris was about four or five miles away from Nazareth and had been razed to the ground by the Romans in six of the common era. So when Yeshua was about 10 years old. Making Nazareth a very good location for an artisan slash day laborer to be there. Now for the record, although both Joseph and Yeshua were called Tecton, which is often referred to as a carpenter, that's, that's a traditional understanding. A Tecton was any sort of skilled craftsman or builder, including not only carpenters, but masons and, you know, that sort of thing as well. As 90% of building projects were in stone, and with trees being far less prevalent and harder to replace, obviously, not like you could actually replace a rock, but there it's kind of like, oh, look, another rock, okay. Um, Yeshua and Joseph were much more likely to be working in stone than in wood, or in both. They, they were quite probably stonemasons. This would make much more sense with Yeshua's focus on stone throughout his teachings. He called Peter Cephas, which means stone. He said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. He spoke of the wise men building his, his house upon the rock. And oh my goodness, sometimes when I misspell something, I, says, I have in the notes here, it says, he spoke of the wise man building his mouse upon the rock. And boy, that's a butchering of the Bible text, isn't it? <laughs> Jeez. Now, tree, so he built his house upon the rock. His house upon the rock. Uh, trees, on the other hand, um, are living things and more often associated with life. None of this changes anything, of course, just something to think about. But Sephoris would have been swarming with men who were tecton or uh, builders for many years. Giving, you know, Joseph a way to support his family, uh, his young family at that point. But um, Nazareth is an obscure place. All right. It's only mentioned, it's, it's mentioned only eight times as a place name and never in the Hebrew scriptures. And 19 times as part of Yeshua's name. Now, Professor James F. Strange once believed that the population in Yeshua's day was com comparable to Capernaum at roughly 1500, which you will hear repeated a lot, okay, because of this guy. You know, but after another decade of research, um, he puts the population at about 480. So other scholars believe it may have been as small as 150 to 200 people. Nazareth was teeny, if that was the case. You know, not anymore, but it was then. Where the name came from, no one knows for sure, but some hypothesize that it may have come from Isaiah 11. Verses 1 through 2, and we're going to read um, actually through verse 5 here. 
there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the lord he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins now the hebrew word for branch in verse one is netzer a word that we find capitalized six times in the prophets because it is believed to refer to the messiah i'll give you the references but i won't read them all because then we get way off track that's isaiah 4 2 isaiah 11 1 which we just read jeremiah 23 verses 5 through 6 jeremiah 33 verses 15 through 17 zechariah 3 verses 8 through 9 and zechariah 6 verses 12 and 13 that's the, the netzer, netzer isn't in all of those verses but i try to give you the context um definitely check them out but the theory is and this is just a theory that this place was settled by davidic descendants and named after this prophecy might be might not be we don't know sounds cool anyway so he um he went to nazareth presumably to the home um it's presumably still the home of his brothers and his mother and as we will see his sisters are definitely there now his disciples were with him which becomes important for next week's teaching and uh, for the theme of this next series of teachings this week sets up the consequences that will determine what come next okay chapter 6 verse 2 and on the sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying where did this man get these things what is this wisdom given to him how are such mighty works done by his hands and there's so much here to unpack you know a lot of stuff that tends to go unnoticed he goes to his hometown assembly and he starts teaching nothing controversial about that um you know and and when somebody had you know the the men of the community would take turns all right anyone who was who was literate would take turns and especially if you'd been out of town it meant that you would have heard things that they wouldn't have heard in town and it's and it's you know it's, it's a good way to get fresh stuff um but you know what's strange about what he's doing and you know and should be strange to people who take some of the apocryphal gospel seriously the gnostic stuff is that they're totally floored at his teachings as though they have never heard any of this before from him you know those who say he was taught torah in the matter manner of later generations having memorized it early on well these guys are certainly not acting as though they expected him to be very educated. 
Yeshua obviously wasn't using them for trial run of teachings before he left for Capernaum in the first place. I mean, he obviously wasn't doing miracles before he left town. And they were shocked at his wisdom. It says they were astonished. This wasn't a case of, yeah, we always knew he was going to be a somebody someday. This was more like a what the heck happened to him after he left town sort of situation. Now, what don't we see? We don't see demons rising up and confronting him as in other places. This is very notable. That's often what happens the first time he preaches in an area. We've seen it happen. As a 30-year-old man, certainly he had read from the Torah and the Haftarah many times, and especially in such a small town before the edge of, you know, dedicated rabbis, which didn't happen until after the destruction of the temple. Now we have to wonder what he was doing before, if anything, that... He could have flown so far beyond the, below the radar that all these things were shocking the people of Nazareth. Now, of course, we've already seen the incident where his mom and brothers traveled to haul what they thought was his crazy butt back home. So it wasn't like rumors weren't getting around, but maybe the townspeople thought they knew him so well after 30 years that they were just laughing off the stories. Now, regardless of what the situation was, they were certainly not laughing now. You know, they're, they're utterly astonished. So, we don't have demons rising up, but we do have a genuine controversy here. Where did he get this message he's preaching? Where did he get this wisdom? How was he working all these miracles and healings and exorcisms? You see, they aren't contesting that he has wisdom. Or that his teaching and preaching aren't amazing. Or that he's doing the works. They're asking where this stuff's coming from. Who is the source? In essence, we have the Beelzebul controversy all over again. Yes, they acknowledge the works, but the source is seriously in doubt. Because it would seem as though this came out of nowhere. Now, there are people who claim that he learned under John the Baptist, but John was only six months older than Yeshua, and Yeshua was busy working as a tecton, a builder. Presumably, he was doing this until the day he left the family. You know, left his mother with one of his brothers and, and was baptized. But apart from the incident that Luke records with the scholars in the temple when Yeshua was 12, it, it looks like this has caught them completely off guard. And let me add that um, they had to be more careful than the other towns in Israel. As the Torah says that the citizens of an heir Hanadot were to be put under the ban if one if the one who led them astray was from their own town. Um, you know, we covered that in the episode about the Beelzebul controversy. They were in more danger and had more to lose than anyone if they followed this guy and he ended up being a heretic. Now I want to look at this verse again. This is verse two, chapter six. 
and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? This is actually the last verse that uh, these two words will appear together in the Gospel of Mark, the words for teaching and synagogue together. We don't see Yeshua as um, recorded as being in a synagogue after this. Now, it doesn't mean that he wasn't going to synagogues and wasn't teaching anymore, obviously. But, you know, it, it, I mean, it was his custom to do so. It just won't show up in the narrative again. From now on, he will be seen on the road and headed toward Jerusalem in his death. Now, Looking more closely at the verse, were all astonished? No. The, uh, the word is police, our word for many, and the word used to translate rabim in the servant songs of Isaiah. All those references to the many whom the servant would save. And the word for astonished is a really cool word, expleso. It doesn't just mean shocked, it means knocked out. And it's used to describe things that are unsettling. You know, things that, you know, Lucy, you got some splaining to do, you know. It's, it's, you need, it demands answers. So, they're amazed, but they want answers. As for wisdom, that word is Sophia. And I want to quote from Sirach. 39 verses 1 through 11, a very popular apocryphal work that is not scripture, but helps us understand how they thought and how they used words and concepts and what they believed during these times. Okay. On the other hand, he who devotes himself to the study of the law of the Most High will seek out the wisdom of all the ancients and will be concerned with prophecies. He will preserve the discourse of notable men and penetrate the subtleties of parables. He will seek out the hidden meanings of proverbs and be at home with the obscurities of, of parables. He will serve among great men and appear before rulers. He will travel through the lands of foreign nations for he tests the good and the evil among men. He will set his heart to rise early to seek the Lord who made him and will make supplication before the Most High. He will open his mouth in prayer and make supplication for his sins. If the great Lord is willing, he will be filled with the spirit of understanding. He will pour forth words of wisdom and give thanks to the Lord in prayer. He will direct his counsel and knowledge aright and meditate on his secrets. He will reveal instruction in his teachings and will glory in the law of the Lord's covenant. Many will praise his understanding and it will never be blotted out. His memory will not disappear and his name will live throughout all generations. Nations will declare his wisdom and the congregation will proclaim his praise if he lives long. Or, sorry, if he lives long, he will have a name greater than a thousand. And if he goes to rest, it is enough for him. That's actually from the Revised Standard Version, because the ESV does not have any apocryphal stuff in it. 
Now, this is where wisdom comes from in their eyes, in the first century Jews. Okay, I have to imagine if Yeshua had been poring over Torah and the prophets night and day, impossible in such a small town, by the way, they'd be thinking, well, all that study finally paid off. Adonai has rewarded him with wisdom. What they say next will really quash the idea that this was a possibility. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Is this not the tecton? He's a builder. He works as a lowly artisan to eke out a living. FYI, carpenters and masons were not respected or way well paid in those days. Anyone who's redone their kitchen knows this is no longer the case. <laughs> they are using it here almost as a pejorative, like, who does he think he is? But the next snippet's worse. The son of Mary. Aw, oh, man. No one's parentage was linked to their mom. I mean, no one's. His name would have been Yeshua ben Yosef, not Yeshua ben Miriam. And there are a couple of theories here. One is that Joseph is long dead, and they're just pointing out the parent who is still alive. Maybe. Gosh, I hope that's what they were doing. I'd love to give them the benefit of the doubt, but, you know, what's the other theory? Well, as you probably guessed, his parentage might be being called into question. It was not a compliment to be called son of a woman. And to be denied that link to your father. Now, adoption was absolutely respectable and legal, and once you were adopted, you were the son of X, and that X was a guy, okay? But if they're denying him that link to Joseph, then they may be taking a cheap shot by using a very old rumor. Namely, the rumor that Mary got pregnant by sleeping around out of wedlock. And that she was an adulteress. After all, we see in Luke that Nazareth is Mary's hometown. We don't know where Joseph's actually from. Might be from right there in town, or maybe from some other village. So the roots of this rumor went deep in ways that only people who grew up in very small towns can truly appreciate. Now, I wrote up a chapter in Context for Adults that explored the possibility that Mary went through the Sotah, the temple ritual that either condemned or cleared a suspected adulteress, but it's, it's entirely subjecture. And I presented it that way. It might have happened. Might not have happened. Mary might still have been considered damaged goods. Joseph may have been considered a righteous fool. Yeshua might have been considered a potential bastard. So many questions. No for sure answers. But even if she was cleared, you know how folks are. It would seem that Mary and his brothers were not there the day that day, but uh, his sisters were there, probably with their husbands. In any event, this was not how someone was supposed to be properly designated. Oh, 
People never change in some ways, huh? <laughs> oh, man. When we come back, we're going to discuss the... We're almost at the half hour here. We're, we're going to discuss the um, some of the rumors about uh, that tried to make Mary out to be a perpetual virgin and why in the ancient world there would have been no honor in that whatsoever. As a matter of fact, there would have been a lot of shame in that. It would not have been seen as a way for any decent woman to uh, to really live her life. Anyway, um, we'll be back in uh, just a few minutes here. Tyler Rosenquist, and <laughs> I can't even say my name. <laughs> I'm Tyler Rosenquist, and welcome back to Character in Context. Uh, this week we are talking about the um, rejection of Yeshua at Nazareth, and um, this is this is after like he he either saved or um, took people from um, really death situations and life situations for. You know, the last four teachings, and he goes to Nazareth, and he's he's being rejected. And uh, so we were just about to cover some uh, some controversies about Yeshua being the son of Mary, um, and uh, furthermore, that is his his brothers are not his brothers; that they're his cousins, and uh, that's an important doctrine in Catholicism that Mary was a perpetual virgin, but uh, there really wouldn't have been anything honorable about it in their world. A woman was honored through childbearing. Perpetual virginity would have been really weird and shameful. In this particular sense, it would have looked like proof that she was some sort of cursed woman. And yet, you know, we see that she has seven children. The biblical number of perfection, or at least seven children, because we know there are sisters. I'm assuming there were two, but there might have been three, which give her eight children, or any more than that. And it's a little bit excessive, Mary. Anyway, all my friends with big families going, "Hey, <laughs> oh, you guys know me." Just laugh it off. Ignore me. Everyone else does. All right. So, but anyway, the word here. The word used here for brothers means brothers. It's Adelphos. Pretty straightforward. And Paul uses it also to describe them um, in 1 Corinthians 9.5 and Galatians 1.19. The word for cousin is used elsewhere by Paul in uh, Colossians 4.10. And it's uh, anepsios. Okay, doesn't even sound like Adelphos. Okay, now all four of his brothers have the names of patriarchs, which makes his own name stick out like a sore thumb. James, of course, is Jacob. Um, in Hebrew, that's Yaakov. Uh, Joseph is possibly a form of uh, Joseph or Yosef. And Judas is a Hellenized form of Judah or Yehuda. And Simon uh, is Shimon. 
brothers even share names with Maccabean zealots. And I want to talk about um, why the Hellenized form of um, Judah is Judas or um, Joseph. It, it's because uh, masculine names didn't end with A. That was feminine. It's like you've got Octavia, the, uh, the sister of... of Caesar, who uh, married Mark Antony. Um, but Julius, you know, Iulius. Um, so it would be, it'd be like he'd be like laughing. It's kind of like if John Wayne wasn't six foot four, people would be laughing at him for being called Marion. Because Marion Marian Morrison was the original name of John Wayne. Um, uh, Leslie Nielsen. And we're used to have him having that name, but now Leslie is not very masculine. And just um, uh, Johnny Cash had the Boy Named Sue song. So culturally, it's important to have the male name sound male and the female name sound female, uh, and especially when you're translating documents. So back to the verse. Um, they took offense at him, okay? The Greek says uh, scandalizo. They were scandalized for whatever reason. Probably no small part of it was that he was a simple carpenter from a small town and he ought to know his place. And I want to mention about zero-sum economies. And if you've read my curriculum on honor and shame in the Bible, then you know all this about this. But I want to do a quick and dirty summary for everyone else. In ancient societies and in two-thirds of the world today, there exists what is known as a zero-sum economy. It means there is only so much of whatever to go around. In a world without supermarkets, that means only so much food. Which is why prepping is fine, but hoarding is evil. It's prepping to buy and stock up when there's plenty, but when supplies are limited, it's called hoarding, which is evil. Hoarding makes sure that the most vulnerable among us, those living paycheck to paycheck and just scraping by, won't have what they need when things get dicey. And yeah, people say they will share, but they never know the person who came by the store and couldn't get the basics because it was already bought up by people who probably already had more than enough to begin with. But they didn't just believe that with tangible items like food. It was also, and, that, and I mean, that was totally true for them, but they also thought there was only so much honor, reputation, or respect to go around. I liken it to pizza. You have 10 people working at your company. There is a pizza, and there's only one pizza. It's sliced into 10 pieces. Now, in an equitable system, everyone gets one piece of pizza, and no one goes hungry. But in an honor-shame society, there are people who get more than one piece and people who do without. Think of each slice of pizza as good reputation. Not like how we think of good re reputation, though. I'm talking about respect, the respect that people get for being rich, powerful, athletic, and not the respect that people get for having good character. You could have high honor while still being a low-down, dirty skunk, dishonorable by our standards. So, some people get a double portion, 
Most people get like one portion and some people have nothing at all. Think rulers versus normal people versus beggars. And, you know, everyone knows their place and stays there. So, well, Yeshua in this small little town was seen as hugging the pizza slices. And if he had more, that means, what does that mean for everyone else in his hometown? They were all being demoted. All the big fish in that small pond were losing reputation because he was crushing it, okay? His gain meant their loss. And this was unacceptable in the ancient world. Thus, they were scandalized by his behavior. Who does he think he is? And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And this is a very accurate statement to make about the dilemma of honor-shame cultures. Unlike the people of the land, the Amharats in every other town, you know, these people had something to lose if he became great. They didn't. It's crazy to us, I know, but they aren't first 21st century Westerners, and we have to just accept that this was how they accepted life. Your victory means my defeat. It wasn't a system where everyone could have a good reputation just by being honorable people, by our definition of what makes someone an honorable person. We believe that everyone can just work hard and achieve and that someone else's success doesn't mean that we're doomed. Or at least we should. Okay, Jealousy is still rampant among believers, which is why celebrity and political gossip is so popular. Now, these people, from you know his own family members to his childhood buddies, they had everything to lose by accepting him and his teachings. Reputation and life were at stake. They didn't want him to be greater than they were, and they didn't want to be declared a seduced city either. It was a no-win situation for Yeshua, but, you know, still it had to be just heartbreaking, you know? Uh, chapter 6, verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them could do no mighty work there. The word for work is dunamis. And so we're talking about miracles, okay? He healed a few people, uh, but we see no sign that anyone was delivered of any demons. Um, were there none, or were they not threatened by him there? You know, um, you know, where there are no, were, were there no demons, excuse me, were they not threatened by him because they knew that honor and shame rules meant that he would be no threat to them in Nazareth? Um, I think it was his mercy that stayed his hand, actually. If he had worked a lot of miracles, it would have put them in the position of making a decision that would have condemned them prematurely if they'd rejected him. Let's look at Mark 11. We're going to jump ahead here. Starting in verse 20 and going through verse 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. 
for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You see, receiving miracles and not responding to them properly brings severe condemnation. Perhaps he couldn't bear to do that to these people he loved the most. That's my assumption as to what happened. Certainly he didn't lack either power or authority. He could have done it, and so he must not have wanted to for some reason. Mercy would be in keeping with his character. Also, how could he heal those who doubted the source of his power? If they then attributed the healings, you know, to, to people who um, question the source of his authority, then, then we're right back to the Beelzebul controversy where they are told that this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, okay? So, uh, verse 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. He must have hoped that these people who had known him all his life would support him. Yeshua was 100% fully, absolutely, and painfully human. Yes, he is also divine. But things hurt him physically and emotionally because he is the perfect representation of the Father's love. The word for marveled here is thalmazo, and this is the only time it's used in Mark to refer to Yeshua. Other people have marveled at him, but this is the only time we see him marveling at others. So, he leaves his hometown, probably for the last time, and goes on his third mention teaching tour of the villages. And next week we will see him up the ante by sending out his disciples to do the same works in teams of two. That, in turn, will lead to some interesting consequences. So, you know, he's been rejected. What does he do? He makes one sad remark about the situation. But he doesn't stomp off. He actually stays to heal a few who believe. He doesn't put on a big miracle show in order to show them that they're wrong. No whip, no table flipping. I mean, this is after his family tried to take hold of him because they thought he was mentally deranged. No threats, no anger, no resentment, no updating his social media while saying, I guess some people can't handle the truthful truthiness of my truth, you rebellious sons of motherless goats. No posturing ranting or raving and it had to hurt worse than we can imagine the stakes were higher he was the ultimate revelation of god's love there in their presence and he was treated with suspicion and maybe even contempt and he wanted nothing more than to save them to bring his own people into the kingdom okay I have never experienced rejection on that level, but what does he do? He keeps on working, he moves on, he doesn't curse them. And might I add, he doesn't call down hellfire on them like all the sons of thunder wanted to do and doesn't cut off anyone's ear. 
You know, learning this was an important lesson for me back in 2014 when I first started teaching. It wasn't something I wanted to do or thought I could do. One day, all of a sudden, I just knew how to teach people things. I mean, not like math and science. I can do math and science, but I'm not a good teacher of those. But I could teach Bible things all of a sudden. And no one was more surprised than I was. You know, before then, I couldn't have taught a bunny to reproduce. And I am totally not exaggerating. Explaining stuff is a gift. And I can still only do it with the Bible. You know, I homeschooled for a few years, and it was pretty ugly. But, you know, when I first started doing it, I, I learned right away how ugly some men can be to women who are teaching. Now, mind you, I never teach anywhere unless I'm invited. I don't go on people's pages and post my teachings. I don't tag anyone. I don't force myself on anyone. I don't even send out friend requests except to scholars I want to talk to and learn from. And mostly the latter is I'm too shy to talk with them and I know they're busy. So I just stay on my social media wall and on my blog and here and on my podcast channel. And that's it. You actually have to come find me. Uh, I do that for a number of reasons. One, I am enormously shy. Two, I am extremely self-conscious. Three, I don't want to set out myself up for needless criticism. But one of the biggest reasons why I can't see myself ever promoting myself to people who aren't already listening to me is because of the abuse out there by a small but vocal minority of men who outright reject me because of my lack of the appropriate genitalia. There are two verses that, when taken out of historical context, make it possible to ignore a whole bunch more other verses, and these are the ones that some guys hone in on and judge me over, but as I never try to teach men and stay on my own platforms, I don't know how I can even be accused of taking authority over men. I mean, men decide for themselves whether to read or listen. I have nothing to do with it, but still, you know, the accusations come. And it is a bit disheartening at times, but it, it's not as crushing as having your family and hometown categorically reject you. So, I've made a point of using Yeshua as my guide as to what I should do. and I just keep on teaching. Unlike him, I am not always right in what I teach, but I do my best. But I just move on to the next lesson and keep going and don't lash out or protest about being oppressed and rejected on social media because that's just silly. There are plenty of teachers out there and no one's going to go to hell because they listen to someone else instead of me so I keep it in context. Sure, occasionally I get nasty letters from men but that's not about me either. A kind man would never harass a woman or call names or any of that so... I can't take that personally. But I also get some really kind letters from men who tell me that God has used me to change their minds about women teaching. And that wouldn't have happened if I was shrieking like a harpy over being rejected. We have to handle rejection with patience and grace. Otherwise, the people rejecting us feel absolutely justified. It's like the difference between peaceful protesters and looters. Peace, peaceful protesters get people to think about looking at things from a different point of view. 
looters make people dig in their heels and see whatever side the looters are associated with as being wrong, no matter what. Bad behavior does not change hearts or attitudes. It just more deeply entrenches them. Good behavior challenges stereotypes and preconceived notions. I am embarrassed when women behave badly because it means I have to work a whole lot harder to be different. But Yeshua has to be our example. He was astonished, but, you know, he didn't retaliate or show off or behave badly or call down fire and brimstone or cut off anyone's ear. He did what he could and he moved on. And, you know... We must be ready, willing, and able to do the same. We certainly don't have cause to be more prideful than Yeshua or more offended. We're called to be humble, you know, not because it's our natural state, but because it's not our natural state. You know, rejection is a wonderful lesson for us, if we allow it. It either does or does not teach us that we cannot control what other people do or think. Well, at least not without resorting to abuse and manipulation. There's plenty of that going on. There are a hundred reasons why someone might object to me as a teacher. Why should I choose to believe the worst reasons and not give them the benefit of the doubt? It really doesn't have to be personal. There doesn't automatically have to be wrong with somebody who rejects me. I mean, I'm not the Savior, not the Messiah, not the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I am certainly not the teacher of teachers. Like Yeshua, we have to do as much good as we can and then move on without bitterness, hatred, judgment, or contempt. We just aren't all that in a bag of chips. Rejecting me is not the same thing as rejecting Yeshua or all wisdom or whatever. Okay? So I just move on and I keep on walking. And, and if I can't do that, then I need to stop teaching because I won't be a safe person to be around. It doesn't mean I'm going to allow you to be abusive to me on my social media wall, but you can disagree with me as long as you're loving about it. We just need to keep things in perspective. It's like the whole, we're going to talk about this. Is it next? I think it's next week. Um, with the shaking off of the dust. And, you know, people say, well, they didn't accept my teaching, so I shook the dust off my feet. And I said, well, did you walk into a town without a money bag and without a place to stay and without an extra set of clothing? And... Did you heal and cast out demons and work miracles and preach the gospel? And then they rejected you? And they'll say, well, no, but I said, well, no, buts because that's what they did. You know, <laughs> there were some specific qualifications set up for um, knocking the dust off your feet. And I've never met those, you know. I've never met those requirements for, uh, you know, being, like, amazing. <laughs> I think sometimes we just got it. We need a Snickers bar because we're a little bit too cranky when people um, aren't quick to just accept us as, well, the people that, that they should listen to. And, and I'm a big believer that 
You know, we have to earn credibility. We don't just walk into a place and say such and such is true and they go, oh, well, goodness sakes, you said it. I just better believe it. Would we want, for example, so say, um, say someone who is another religion comes up to our children and says, blah, 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 and they promote uh, Mormonism or they promote Islam or Buddhism or Taoism or animal, animalism, animism, goodness sakes, it has nothing to do with animals, by the way, or um, just Hinduism or um, Sikh, what, whatever. You know, do we want our kids to have learned from us that it's important for them to just believe everything everyone says? Because when we walk into a situation and we're demanding people take our word for things, we're training them to fall for every wind of doctrine, and that's not healthy. We can't hold others to... Um, Standards we're not going to hold our own stuff to. No, you need to be able to see that I'm a decent person. You need to be able to see that um, I live what I teach. And, of course, you can't do that. And so you've got to check out everything I've said. And some of what I say, you've got to just kind of, you know, take it with a grain of salt because you really don't know me. Anyway, but fortunately, we all know Yeshua now. And that is the whole point. So, you know, don't take rejection seriously. Sometimes people have a good reason for just not taking us as seriously as we want to be taken. See you next week.